right, we're back, y'all. This is John Lawrence with Anesthesia Guidebook, and this is episode 85, part two of the McLot Mix with Jason McLot himself. So in part one of this conversation, we talked about Jason's background, what led him to get into opioid-free anesthesia, and the details of the McLot Mix and how he suggests that it be used. In this episode, we're going to go a little bit more into the details of how Jason uses this McLot mix in his own practice, some of the nuances, some of the other medications that he either avoids or that he uses, uh, dosing and that kind of stuff, and then how providers can instigate change in moving their own practices and groups towards opioid-free anesthesia. This episode is an excellent example of what Randy Moore and Desiree Chapel and I talked about back in episode 82 on change management in healthcare and just how difficult that can be. So hopefully both of these shows, part one and part two with Jason McLot, get you thinking about real ways that you can build opioid-free techniques into your own anesthesia practice. If you're just showing up to this episode, definitely go back and check out part one. Uh, but just as a reminder, if it's been a minute, I'll introduce Jason to you and then we'll get right to it. Jason completed his anesthesia training at Oakland University's Beaumont Nurse Anesthesia Program and works in a CRNA-only practice at Blue Ridge Hospital in rural West North Carolina. He regularly mentors SRNAs from Western Carolina University in Asheville, North Carolina. Jason also instructs regional anesthesia courses with Twin Oaks Anesthesia. And with that, let's get to the show. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you totally can expand your practice and your knowledge of anesthesia. So that's why I try to tell the, the students I get, I'm like, I do anesthesia now way different than I learned how to do it a little over 10 years ago. I was like, you know, I told them four years out of school, I was doing anesthesia totally opposite of the way that I learned how to do anesthesia. Right. So I was like, you know, it may be totally different in six years. We don't know. There might be some awesome, you know, discovery and pain management. I think that I'm really interested in uh, pharmacogenetics. What's going to be the, you know, the future of that a patient comes in for a blood draw and, you know, maybe there are patients out there that opiates are the superior form of analgesia and they're not at risk of having an addiction or, or chronic pain or, you know, the, uh, you know, the gauntlet of post-operative, you know, issues that you can get with opiates. But yeah. I think for now, we just need to use what the evidence shows us. And, you know, it's, that, it's not it's, strong, you know, and that was, that was another thing I think we, we kind of missed on it was when you asked me about, you know, what got me into opiate-free anesthesia, it was that patient. It was what I want to do something better for my, for my patients, but I had several friends who've died from opiate overdoses and uh, I had, my father was on opiate pills for many, many years because they thought that was the best way to treat his chronic pain. So when the whole um, paradigm of treating pain and the opiate addiction problem, and now providers were put under, you know, the spotlight, so to say, that they needed to decrease their opiates that they're going to prescribe postoperatively. And they were looking at me and they're saying, well, what are you doing? you're still going to give all that nasty stuff in the operating room. And I was like, huh, maybe there's a different way that I can go about it. So, yeah. you know, I think if we're the guys who are the pusher men or pusher women, we need to be the ones saying, Hey, I can do it without it. And now, you know, my general surgeons, my buddy just uh, had a gallbladder out from me, you know, at my hospital, he got four pain pills, literally four pain pills prescribed to him. And and I asked him, I was like, do you think you're going to take them? He's like, 
I don't know. I didn't think I needed them. Yeah. I was like, well, you don't. I was like, just take them to the sheriff and they got a little box you can drop them <laughs> off at. So I think, you know, if we want to, if, if there's change to be made and we can be the ones that help lead it, I think that that's important. Dude. So good. Well, I'm sorry to hear about your dad. I'm sorry to hear about your friends. Uh, oh, yeah. My dad's totally off opiates. Got him off of those things. Yeah, it was it was amazing. He hated coming off of them, and the Aladenia was uh, was ridiculous that he had. And I said, let's just just give it time, you know. And he uses some nature remedies, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you know, moved out to Colorado. But you know, he's he's his quality of life is way better than it was. And it's amazing that, so good. you know, they thought for so long that you just give, you know, give opiates for pain, you know? Yeah. So it's nice to see all the other different things like ketamine clinics popping up and, you know, people, I've had a couple of people who are actually take this bravado for chronic pain. So I, I like talking to those patients and they're, they're amazed. They're like, yeah, I was, I was on all these pills and getting all these shots. And now I just, do this little thing in my nose. And they tell me at the first week or two, it was kind of, you know, a nuance that they kind of get that hallucination, but they said it just goes away. Right. You're talking about Spravato, which is the FDA approved <laughs> intranasal ketamine, yeah, which ketamine. was, yeah. yeah, which was initially approved for acute suicidal ideation and has been described as a silver bullet for bridging people from suicidal ideation into more long-term treatment plans with, of course, medications, antidepressants, but also therapy. So it's very interesting to hear people are using that for chronic pain. Yeah, it would be awesome if we could get S-ketamine in the United States. That's that's We use the racemic uh, combination here in the United States, which has the high hallucination properties and stuff like that. But in Europe, they have S-ketamine. And that that's going to be that you'll get great analgesia from that, but you don't get the side effects of the hallucinations, which personally, I think many providers things happens more than it really does. I right. mean, I give tons of ketamine. I give no benzos in my practice. I guess, you know, we could kind of talk a little caveats, you know, now yeah. about, you know, things that I've, you know, kind of found out in opiate free anesthesia. Uh, I don't give gabapentin. So yeah, I found, we found gabapentin. It was actually one of my uh, astute um, PACU nurses realized that patients who got gabapentin and dexmedetomidine were the ones having, you know, some softer blood pressures in recovery. And those that didn't get gabapentin, be it they were on it and they took it in the morning or they just refused to take it or they couldn't take it for some reason that they didn't have blood pressure issues postoperatively. Everyone thought it was the dexmedetomidine that was causing it. But when I, when she told me what she was seeing, I said, makes sense. Let's stop giving gabapentin. Now we don't have hardly any blood pressure issues in the postoperative arena with patients who've gotten wow. dexmedetomidine. Man, um, that's, that's, my, I, that's my kind of PACU nurse. You know, yeah. When you have three of them, they 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 tell you what's <laughs> up, <laughs> and that's another thing. You know, if this didn't work, my nurses would tell me. Yeah, my little community that I live in would tell me. Um, we actually are the second. We have the second highest patient satisfaction scores for like the last two quarters for all the hospitals that the corporation that owns our hospital. So, wow. I mean, we're, we're, our patients are liking what they're receiving at, at the hospital for their surgery. That's awesome, man. Um, are, you, are you folded in with Mission Health? Yes, yes. So, yeah, we're so part of Mission Health. Owned by 
HCA, HCA. it's epic. Yeah. Huge, so, huge you know, national corporation. And, and, and thankfully, HCA is looking at ERAS very astutely. Like they're zeroed in on it. And, you know, so they know decreasing opiates is good for the patient, good for the bottom line. So they push it big time. And that's one of the things. All they, they want all their patients to get gabapentin and pre-op. And I tell them my patients won't get it because I'm giving stuff in the intraoperative arena that are going to mess with it and going to make it worse. But I'm doing things that one dose of gabapentin really isn't going to do much anyways. The patient needs to be on it for about five days preoperatively, take it at bedtime, then come in and have surgery. If you want to use a good gabapentinoid, use Lyrica. It's going to have faster absorption but it's really expensive. So it's, that's why everyone wants to use gabapentin. Yeah. The other thing is I don't give, I don't give benzos. I don't give Versed. So Versed and dexmedetomidine, you want your patient to sleep after surgery for a long time. <laughs> that's what's going to cause it. Um, we found you give Versed, you know, I just give one of Versed, 10 mic suppressidex and the patients couldn't get themselves over to the bed once we got to the operating room. So now I just make up a syringe. I, I have on my website, the ketamine um, dexmedetomidine mixture. It's like 10 mics of dexmedetomidine, 10 milligrams of ketamine per ML. But a lot of patients, I wouldn't say a lot, but there was, it was a significant number that didn't like the ketamine feeling that they were getting. And I was giving it as we were going back. And I was like, you know what? I'll just give the ketamine at induction, like I had been doing for years and years before. So now I just give five to 10 micrograms of dexmedetomidine when I go to interview them. After I make sure their EKG looks good, they're not in, you know, weird sinus bradyarrhythmia. And the anxiolytic effects, you'd be super surprised how well dexmedetomidine works for an anxious patient compared to Versed. It doesn't work as fast as Versed, but it works. It works well totally. enough that you give it and then you go do your thing and you come back and your patient may be sleeping a little bit. They may be a little bit more relaxed, but they're going to wake right up. So it's nice. You know, if the surgeon hasn't seen them yet. You can give an anxiolytic to your patient and they have no amnesia. So they're going to remember everything that the surgeon tells them but they're also relaxed. And I think that that's a good thing for the patients. Yeah. That's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Versed so is one of the things that I pretty much, I mean, you know, I, I don't know, man, the probably had a 99% reduction in use of that. Uh, since I started the anesthesia, like when I, like when I rolled out, I told Tom this on the, on the previous episode I did with him. When I started practicing the anesthesia, it was Two of said five cc's of fentanyl and a stick of Dilaudid, <laughs> milligram of Dilaudid. Like that, that was my plan. That was it. Yeah, yeah, controlled yeah. substances. And then uh, this was a number of years ago. My chief pulled me aside and said, hey, man, I, I started reading about ERAS, started reading about ketamine, you know, developed talks on both those things. And then at one point, my chief pulled me aside and said, I just want to let you know, like, I'm, I'm not asking you to not use this, but you're using ketamine at a rate that is triple what every other anesthesia provider is using at our institution and pharmacy let me know and <laughs> they have not identified any misuse because i don't know they do like randomized yeah, testing yeah, yeah, or whatever yeah, yeah. but and he's like it's your practice it's it's you know you do you but i just want to let you know <laughs> i got an email so so what's it's kind of funny um, when HCA took over our hospital, 
Um, you know, they, they had their people come in, they're reviewing the charts and, you know, all the books and they're very particular about wasting and what's being used and everything. And they, they had a major concern that the CRNA, well, they didn't know I was the only CRNA, but there is a CRNA at Blue Ridge who hasn't wasted any opiates for over three years. Oh, interesting. And they're like, huh? And they're like, this CRNA. And then they, they came and they talked. And they're like, the CRNA hasn't wasted an opiate in three years. What's going on? And the pharmacist is like, he said he had to like hold in his laughter. He's like, well, that CRNA doesn't use opiates at all in his anesthesia. He and they're like, at all? And he's like, at all. He doesn't use at all. He- he's like, and actually our... OR, the pack you will go a month without using opiates at all. Oh my like, gosh. The, the, one of the funniest stories I have about it is uh, they got a new Carpu Jets and they got a training from the nurse uh, educator on how to use these Carpu Jets. Then the nurses went over almost a month without using Dilaudid. <laughs> and they had to all figure out how they use this Carpu jet. So I got blamed for that. You know, it's, it's, it's so your good. fault, Jason. You don't remember how to use the Carpu it's jet. So good. And, you know, my yeah. nurses, they joke around that they don't know. They don't, they're not real PACU nurses anymore because they don't deal with nausea, vomiting, really. Oh, interesting. Their patients are pretty awake. You know, I have surgeons who, my ortho guy, he really complains that, you know, he jokingly, that he's like, Jason, can, can I wait to pack you to debrief my patient? Cause they didn't get any <laughs> benzos. They got a little Presidex and, you know, and a nerve block and they're nice, you know, they're nice and awake at the end of surgery. He's like, can I wait till recovery to debrief? Um, my, uh, nurses, uh, rigors shaking after surgery, not even a thing. We, we never see it. Um, you know, so they're like, I don't, I wouldn't know how to go somewhere else and do a chin lift and, you know, have to put an oral airway wow. in and have puking, um, you know. I think the two most common questions that most, that probably 98% of PACU nurses in the United States ask are immediately upon arrival to PACU to the patients at the first signs of life, they're going, are you having any pain? Do you yeah, feel yeah. sick? Are you nauseous? It's the two most common questions, which we could do a whole conversation on, you know, being in a suggestible state under, you know, emergence from anesthesia and, you know, telling people that they should be having pain and nausea, which is really interesting. But I love that, that your PACU nurses are saying, we're, we don't even feel like we're real PACU nurses anymore because yeah. we're just not dealing you know- with these issues. And really, I, I think too, I, you know, I, I give kudos to my PACU nurses all the time, especially, you know, when I, when I would lecture, I'd, I'd talk about how we end our care as the patient leaves the operating room, and then they pick up the ball. And luckily my PACU nurses get the limiting of opiates. So if they have a patient in recovery, they're asking, are you in any discomfort? They're not trying to immediately, the patient says they're in pain and they're given a half a milligram of Dilaudid. If the patient's on their phone drinking a soda, they don't need opiates. And, and I hear all the time, my nurse is telling the patients, you had surgery, you're going to be sore. So they understand the difference between sore and pain. Pain's the patient can't take a deep breath. Yeah. 
Pain is the patient can't get up and walk to the bathroom. Pain's the patient can't cough comfortably, you know, without splinting a lot. That's pain. That needs to be managed. Sore is they have a little cramping from the gas. Well, they need to get up, walk around, let that gas get reabsorbed, and, and that gas pain's going to go away. So, you know, I think the PACU nurses, I think, you know, we're only one piece of it, but in the totality right. of things, ERAS protocols, you know, a lot of it's going to fall on the nurses. But if we can set them up for success, totally, it's all better. It's so good. Uh, well, Jason, we, I think we're almost at an hour here, man. And we're just, oh, wow. we're just cruising, dude. Yeah. I feel sorry for my students sometimes because I do have a, the gift of gab, <laughs> but uh, well, you, you know, it's, I, there's so many, like you said, there's so many layers to this. There's, you know, cause we're only now just talking about the pharmaceuticals and just touching on what to do. But I, I think, I think more people are going to be using opiate-free anesthesia. I think those who are against it or not comfortable with it, they're going to be made to because the hospital systems are seeing the benefit of it. Yeah. You know, and it's it's yeah. amazing just the growth that this has had in six years. You know, I when I first did this, I put my PowerPoint that I was giving up in Michigan at State Association. I put it up online, and man the beating I got about how negligent I was to my patients and how could you do this to your patients? And I'm like, I've been doing it for a year. My patients are doing great. What's I'm like, are you serious? And, uh, but then six months time, some of those people who are against it were messaging me, Hey, how would you do this? What do you think about this? And then when I started having DNP students messaging me, Hey, I want to do my DNP study. I did my DNP study and using your mix on a gastric sleeve and we have this, can you look at the study? I'm just, my mind is blown. So, I mean, I think the kudos for all this though has to go to Tom. I mean, we wouldn't be, we'd still be doing anesthesia probably the way we're, they learned in 1975, you know, know, it's, 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 it's a great future I think for us. Tom Barabo, tip of the spear. So stoked about it. Totally. Totally. He's, he's so good. He's such the guy for it too. He's so even keel. He's such an ambassador for positive change in the anesthesia community and has just absorbed because you're absolutely right. The blowback on change is dramatic. I was just actually a guest on a podcast from uh, a group that has a electronic medical record for anesthesia providers. And I was telling them about you know, from the ERAS literature, I read that there's a, a 17 year lag time in the literature from new evidence based information becoming utilized in the mainstream of practice. 17 year lag time. And they were like, it, it, It's sad that it's still that. Well, yeah, it is sad. And they were like, uh, This guy was like, That's super disheartening. He's like, If I was a clinician, that would be a driver of burnout for me to be like, We can't get anything done short of a 17 year lag time. Like, that's horrible. And I think change is really hard for people. And Tom, you know, in our opioid free talk back in episode 42, talked about, you know, anesthesia providers, clinicians, healthcare providers we're very deliberate about change. Like we want to see the evidence. We want to see the data. And I think that the data on opioid free anesthesia is growing. It's grown substantially in the last five to 10 years. But in that same time, there has been a huge pushback. I think mainly, I mean, you see, you see some 
studies that show, you know, maybe not a huge shift depending upon how the study was structured between, you know, baseline opiate use, opioid sparing, anesthesia, opiate free anesthesia. But I think predominantly the studies have shown there's dramatic benefit postoperatively for avoiding opiates in the intraoperative phase. But I have seen a number, and I want to ask you about this before we go, I've seen a number of op-eds in journals, like opinion pieces of people saying pushing an opiate-free agenda is dangerous. And I'll tee up for this just in, in one more sentence in that I think a lot of people have that misnomer of opiate-free hospital experience versus opiate-free anesthesia, which you made that distinction earlier in this podcast. But I have seen a big pushback on that. And I think people like yourself, people like Tom Barabo, have needed to push through that resistance to try to delineate the truth and what we're actually talking about for the benefit of patients. Yeah. And a, and a lot of those op-eds, they're looking at studies where the medications were used inappropriately. Like you're not going to, you shouldn't be bolusing your patient with dexmedetomidine and then running it on the infusion rate that you would if you're using it as, as the anesthetic. We're not using dexmedetomidine for its, you know, full anesthetic benefits. We're using it for the analgesic portion. So I think that that's one thing that these studies do. They, they go, oh, well, the this is how it's used. Let's just use it at this. So you know, I think the more familiar people get with the medications and how it should be used, you know, a lot of those studies say, oh, the hypotension, the bradycardia. Well, yeah, if you're bolusing them, like I don't even, my patients rarely get even a full microgram per kilo of dexmedetomidine. Why would I bolus them with that in 10 minutes, then run an infusion rate at 0.7 mics per kilo per hour? It's not necessary. So, so they're given too much. And that is like, why well, I want to make a point, run this at ideal body weight. Yeah. You know, what's used the lowest amounts of every medication at its proven dosage for analgesia and see what happens. And that's what guided me when I started doing opiate free anesthesia. That was in the back of my head. How is this going to be the safest thing for my patient? So, How is this not going to prolong recovery? Because really, and you know, thankfully I'm by myself when I teach this because I can tell the students like, it seems crazy, right? But it's me. If something goes wrong, it falls on me. And I guarantee you, I mean, I get a lot of support from, from my hospital and my managers that, you know, main mission stuff. But I guarantee you, there's some people in the back wings probably thinking, okay, when's the CRNA going to mess it up? Because I right. guarantee you, I'm the only CRNA solo probably in the whole corporation for HCA. And, you know, it's it's good that they let me do that. But I also practice CYA anesthesia because, right. you know, unfortunately, there is a discrimination between, you know, there's a provider discrimination, you know, if I was a physician, it'd be a totally different thing. So, so you, interesting. Know, you know, those things got to be taken to perspective. That's very interesting. And so just to be crystal clear on this infusion, we talked about the contents earlier, lidocaine, ketamine, magnesium, dexmedetomidine. You're infusing this at 0.5 mils per kg per hour of ideal body weight. And do you do any kind of bolus up front? No. You just so start I, the infusion. I, let me take that back. Let me take that back. So, you know, the dexmedetomidine I use as an anxiolytic, 
Um, so okay. usually, you know, and then I'll give another CC going back and maybe another CC at induction. So typically 20 to 40 mics of dexmedetomidine, and that's all dependent upon the patient. Um, ketamine, I used to go with the half milligram per kilo at induction. And really, I've been kind of going backwards towards what ASRA recommends, about a 0.35 milligrams per kilo bolus on induction. Um, I give my Toradol, I give half of the Toradol dose at induction. So I'm trying to use every medication I can to work on that peripheral and central sensitization, you know, at the beginning. But no, I like, you know, the mix, I don't bolus the mix or anything. I hook it up. Typically I get them to sleep, intubate them. And then if I'm going to do a block, do the block, and then I'll start the infusion. So, you know, sometimes there's some lag time. And that was like an interesting thing. I had a group of students who did their DNP study on the mix and actually looked at the hemodynamic stability of the mix. And this might be groundbreaking, but they found a statistical decrease in blood pressure from induction to incision. I mean, I don't know if that happens with opiate-based <laughs> but sometimes... It also happened with opiate free anesthesia. And so, you know, the statistician, you know, they, they pointed out, but it's also common knowledge. Well, yeah, that happens with almost every anesthetic. Yeah, um, totally. <laughs> totally. So, you know, nothing was even happening. And half the time the infusion wasn't even started until like the blood pressure kind of came up. And that's another thing with induction. I only give a milligram per kilo of propofol. So like if you bolus you know, you give them dexmedetomidine, ketamine, right. a big dose of lidocaine, and then you give them a one and a half to two milligrams of propofol, I can guarantee you, you'll be resuscitating that patient. I, I don't know, man. I think I think if you can send me the link to that DMP project, I might be able to write an op-ed in opposition to OFA off of that based upon the hemodynamic changes. I don't after know it. if they've ever, I don't know if they ever published <laughs> it. They I'm just, presented I'm just it razzing and you. I wanted them, I wanted them to Cause it's really interesting. Cause that's yeah, yeah. a big concern. It's like, well, you're given all these meds. What happens? Right. Well, they showed like, it's pretty stable. It's yeah. like, and post-operatively nobody's on a vasoactive right. drug. Right. I mean, I'm doing bread and butter cases. Why would they need to be? Right. Well, and so two points real quick, I'm going to circle back to that real fast. One of the points you made was this, is that you, we, we talked about, do you give a bolus up front of the mix? You said you don't bolus the mix, but sometimes you'll bolus some dexmedetomidine. We talked about how you'll skip versed, you're avoiding versed, but you might bolus pure dexmedetomidine in pre-op as an anxiolytic. And then you're getting into the OR, then you're starting the mix. So just, just to confirm that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to give a CC and then maybe another CC while yeah. we're going back. Um, you know, and it's all, it all depends on, you know, how the, if I give one CC of dexmedetomidine and the patient's snoring, there's no need for me to give right. another one. As which, we're going back. which cycles back. I did want to mention this. You were talking about kind of on an offhand tangents and I told you that we were going to chase some rabbits in this conversation. And I yeah, hope, you know, I hope the audience is still fine, with us. Good. We're coming down yeah. to the end here though. Uh, that I just heard a talk on pharmacogenetics by Drew Riddle, who is a okay. who is a PhD CRNA out of Texas. I think he actually just was elected he the, president, yeah. the, the president of the AANA. Uh, so he's the president elect of the AANA. 
and his PhD is in pharmacogenetics. And I just heard him. We were both speaking at the Ohio State Association of Nurse Anesthetists. He gave a talk on pharmacogenetics and basically saying it's going to be the future of anesthesia, but talking specifically about that. There's a genetic bell curve in terms of people's response to all different kinds of medications. And that if you give a CC of Presidex to one person in pre-op, they might be snoring. You give a CC of Presidex to somebody else in pre-op, they don't feel anything. And I think no. anecdotally, we've seen that, you know, you see people yeah. who, you know, you're having to do a jaw thrust going back to the OR after you give them a, you know, two milligrams of Versed in pre-op for those who are commonly using that medication and other people, they don't feel that at all, you know? And I, so I think that genomic testing of patients and then matching their pharmacology will be something that is coming down the pipe. By the time you and I are done with the anesthesia, that's probably going to be commonplace oh, yeah. in our practice. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. Yeah. We hit, I think we hit on that earlier that, you know, that's going to really guide what medications are most appropriate for everybody. I mean, that's, that's awesome. That's where it needs to get. Yeah, yeah. That's where it needs to end up at. That's how we we stay away from turning people into addicts, you know, postoperatively. And, right. You know, those who are just going to continue taking post-op pain meds when not needed. And right. Yeah, I think right. that that's it's an awesome way. Right. Well, Jason, is there anything else that you want to say as we sound off? I'd love to have you back on the show. We can go in any of these directions in more detail in the future. But anything else you want people to hear before we go? No, you know, I'm just, if you haven't tried OFA, try it. <laughs> if you, if you haven't, your kids will know. I think Brian Seeley uses a, a back to the future. You know, it's, <laughs> you, if that. you haven't heard about it, your kids will be doing it. You your know, kids are going to so, love it. <laughs> you know, just, yeah. Your kids are going to love it. Yeah. Um, you know, just try it. You know, that's, that's all I can say. If you are doing it, spread the good word. I mean, I think there's, you know, there's definitely room for growth and education. You know, it's the, the SRNAs eat this up. They absolutely love seeing yep. opiate free anesthesia. And that's one of the things that, you know, I get to see is other people's practices through the eyes of students. And I can tell you from personal experience, many students go, why aren't people doing it this oh, way? Oh, yeah. Amaze how how stable patients are, how comfortable they are, how awake they are in recovery. They're like, why isn't anybody else doing this? And I'm like, I don't know, but hopefully they'll, you know, they'll start doing it. I think the more the word gets out there, you know, and and those studies, I I totally get how people don't want to mess up their practice, how people want to stay safe, you know, and they want the proof to be there. And you know, unfortunately, we're we are a profession of alpha personalities. Nobody would have proved this right to me until I did it. So I get it. So, you know, I think that that's understandable. Yeah. I hear you though on, on the SRNAs being a source of change in the community and how stoked they are. And so if you're, if you're an SRNA, if you're an anesthesia resident out there and you're listening to this, you know, don't be afraid of your potential to change practice and to change what's going on in the community. I hear it every time. So I'm a, I'm a clinical coordinator at a level one trauma center in Maine, but every time our SRNAs come back from CRNA only sites where they're doing regional anesthesia, they come a little bit wide-eyed back to the big hospital and they go, I've not given an opiate in two months and we're doing 
you know, open belly cases, GYN cases, spine cases. They're doing similar cases to what we're doing at the big hospital, but they're not using opiates. And then they're having to reassimilate into a community in which opiates are still part of the intraoperative phase, you know? So I think, you know, all of this cycles back to, you know, change is slow, change happens incrementally in the anesthesia community. But that's one of the primary reasons why I wanted to reach out to you, why I'm so grateful for you coming on the podcast to talk a little bit about the McLot mix from the horse's mouth, man. I'm so stoked that you joined me on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks a lot, John. Hey, y'all, John here. If you're digging the show, will you take a couple of minutes and drop a review of Anesthesia Guidebook on Apple Podcasts? Your comments and ratings help other people trust the show. Also, send a link to the podcast to your classmates and colleagues. Word of mouth is the best way for Guidebook to grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.